Welcome to The Classical Corner, a new podcast brought to you by myself, Davina Clark, where I will delve into the secrets behind classical music and take you on a journey through some of the most inspired and beautiful works ever written. Throughout this series, I shall be joined by a selection of remarkable and talented musicians. Not only will we discuss our love for music, but I shall also discover the thoughts and processes behind my illustrious guests and what makes them the top of their game in the classical music field. So, come and join me in the Classical Corner. Lizzie Ball is an international violinist, vocalist and concert producer. As a prolific performer, Lizzie has been on the international stage for two decades and despite her rigorous classical training, has always been passionate about performing all styles of music. In 2012, Lizzie created and founded Classical Kicks in an ongoing mission to bring classical music to a wider audience in accessible and more diverse venues and contexts. In recognition of her innovative, creative approach to classical music, Lizzie was awarded an honorary master's from the University of Derby in 2018. Shortly after this, she was chosen as one of the UK's most inspirational females in a list of 50 outstanding UK women making an impact in a feature run by the Daily Mail. Lizzie is an ambassador for Prisma, a charity founded to help children in need by providing arts workshops to rural underdeveloped areas of Mexico. She has recently been awarded a prestigious RPS Enterprise Award for her new life coaching business, Set Your Stage. It is my pleasure to welcome Lizzie to the Classical Corner today. Hi Lizzie, and thank you so much for joining me today in the Classical Corner. Oh, it's so great to be here, Davina. Thanks for having me. Absolute mm. pleasure. So before we get started on some more musical discussions, I thought our listeners might like to know a little bit about you and how your musical journey started. Yeah, sure. Well, I'm a violinist, a vocalist, um, a creative producer. I also recently um, qualified as a coach and I'm kind of mixing that into my work as a musician as well. And yeah, I mean, I've always had like a wide interest in all kinds of music. So obviously like very classically trained at the beginning of my life, but from a, my sort of early 20s was always looking for, you know, ways to look at other styles of music. So I don't know, like, what what more do you want to know? There's so much <laughs> I could tell you, but I'm aware there's like, <laughs> there might be specifics or yeah. plethora, of... plethora of stuff. Yes. Mm -hmm. And um, you trained at the Royal College. Is that is that right? Yeah, I trained at the Royal College. I actually did a music degree at Cambridge. So I did that first, which, um, you know, was a great thing. I really loved being there. And like, I still have really great friends who you know, we're all doing like different subjects and stuff. So I found that really inspiring, actually. It was really like yeah. the place for me, actually. Um, and then I did a postgrads degree at the Royal College. So that was a nice mix. And I actually did a year at the Guildhall um, a bit later on as well. So I kind of just had my had my fill of all the, um, all the places, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think it's a wonderful balance to have. I actually also went to uh, university and did a degree and then I mm. went and did my postgrad because I, nice. I don't know, it's a very big decision to make when you're 18 um as to whether you want to fully go into performing um yeah, totally. it just seems um a huge a huge choice to make and also if you haven't been to a music school or or something like that it's not really a natural progression everyone goes to university yeah. and it seems like the right thing to do and i do you know both of us are full-time performers now and have been you know are lucky enough to play all around the world with wonderful groups um 
but I think it, there's something wonderful about having a degree and sort of knowing that you've got that foundation to fall back on. And certainly with what you have just mentioned about your next stage in life, about your life coaching, which we'll talk about later. Um, yeah. But wonderful to have that as a as a foundation and a starting base, I think. Yeah, definitely. And I think also it's just nice to kind of like widen yourself, if that makes sense. Like, I think I always just liked to learn about stuff. And um, I think everyone's different, but I always had this sense that if I'd gone to an institution that only focused on the instrument, I just think it probably would have made me quite unhappy mm -hmm. because that wasn't the only thing that I loved. And so I think it just would have been too restrictive for me. But I think everyone's different, you know, so it just depends on, on the person, really. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as you mentioned, you, you train classically, but your musical identity now is actually something which is much more diverse as you incorporate lots of different styles into your playing. What yeah. sparked your interest in this? Where did this stem from? Well, actually, my late father was a jazz pianist. So I kind of think from quite young, there was definitely some influence there um, from him. I mean, he, you know, he actually, my parents were divorced when I was quite young, but still there was sort of this sense of the piano. And every time I saw him, he, you know, we would meet and kind of jam. We'd always have a jam together. So there was always this kind of, it was just really natural for me to have that in my sort of fabric, if you like, of growing up. Um, I think both my parents, my mum particularly, was amazing at just, you know, she listened to everything as well. So she'd always have like, you know, one minute she'd have opera on, the next minute she'd have Ella Fitzgerald on. There was never any sense of like one musical focus. So I guess that was the real starting point. And then, you know, I think for me, like music doesn't really have boundaries. It's like one of the only things that doesn't have to, you know, in terms of yeah. like what you can enjoy, what you can play. So, I, you know, I always struggled with this sense of classical music, which I love, but the sort of some of the culture that can surround it is very uh, limiting, I think. Yeah, and I think and a lot of people, yeah, I think a lot of people sort of feel boxed into this, um, the should do, you know, like, oh, we should play this, we should do this. And I kind of have never really felt that's for me. So I guess that in a way, I always had a sort of mini rebellion in myself from being quite young. You know, I always, I mean, Nigel Kennedy was like my, you know, sort of my hero really growing up. And I think when he emerged on the scene, I was only about 10. And it was yeah. just this perfect timing, really, of, you know, who is this crazy guy with an amazing, you know, haircut and a football shirt? And and it just really spoke to me um, because, you know, his playing was so phenomenal mm. that it was kind of like you could just do, it was like, oh, he can actually do what he wants because he can just blow everyone away with this incredible musicianship and yeah I was hooked you know I remember my mum taking me to a concert I begged her to take me to his concert when he came to Sheffield where I grew up um and you know I'll never forget it I mean I was like gripping the handrail we were sort of up in the in the balcony seats and you know even in the interval I remember like she said to me oh you know do you want an ice cream and I was like no and I literally didn't want to leave my seat in case I missed it you know I yeah. was like she's like it's the interval and I was like no no I need to stay you know, so that was kind of, for me, I, I really remember that performance like it was yesterday. Just this vivid sense of him, you know, doing everything that was not how you would normally be taught to do classical music. And me going, yes, this is it. Yeah. This is it. Um, and the other thing about Sheffield was actually growing up there in my early sort of teens. I mean, again, I had, you know, I was really lucky to have an amazing teacher who was the the wife of the late Peter Cropper from the Lindsay. So Nina Martin was my teacher growing up. And I also learned with Nina. Did you? Oh, I that's did. amazing. Oh, God, how did we not know that? I don't know. Oh. I learned with her at the academy. So. Oh, she's the best. Yeah, yeah she's wonderful. amazing. She's amazing. So basically she was, you know, she was actually really supportive of 
I, I had this interest in indie music and, you know, rock and roll and stuff from a young mm. age and obviously been in Sheffield, which was the kind of hub of, I mean, you know, the north of England at that time was just full of amazing things. I mean, that's where Pulp started, Finlay Quay, you know, Richard Hawley's obviously Pulp's guitarist who's now an artist in his own right. They were all kind of starting really around that time. So there was a real kind of, um, what, what would you say, like a sort of buzz that dropped down into like local teenage scene, you know, of that vibe. So there were loads of incredible bands of, of my contemporaries and I, I just was desperate to get involved. So I kind of go and play strings with them and run into nightclubs when I was like 14 and playing string sections. Yeah, I've been doing that for kind of literally as long as I can remember, as long as I've been standing on stage playing like my concertos, the local orchestras when I was yeah. young and, you know, so it's kind of just really natural for me to do both. And I think that's always just, it's almost just like, well, why wouldn't you, to be honest? But then, you know, some people you meet are kind of like completely um, one thing. And I, yeah, I've just never understood that really. I'm just, I guess I'm lucky. That's amazing. Mm. And I, actually, I have to say, I feel like you do in the fact that music doesn't have any boundaries. And I did struggle mm. a little bit with that when I started specialising actually in Baroque music yeah. when I did my master's in that and I sort of stripped everything back and really focused on that for a bit and I I remember having this moment thinking oh okay now is this classical um, am I playing this with a modern orchestra am I playing this with a Baroque orchestra and what style do I need to play and um, that needs to be different and then I suddenly thought hang on the violin is the violin it's the same yeah. instrument whether you use a talk bow or whether you use a baroque bow or whether you're using whatever a straw yeah. or a carrot it's the same yeah. it's the same thing it's all the same instrument um and actually just interpretation is just your own personal way of of adding um your style to things and actually it yeah. is all the same it's all the same thing um yeah. and it was actually very liberating to kind of uh come to that uh, conclusion myself that it was all the same instrument whether you're playing on gut strings or not doesn't matter it's the same yeah, thing it's yeah, your interpretation yeah. actually that that matters yeah. yeah yeah and also there's only one you so I exactly think that's the thing that I've always tried to kind of um stay true to is it's it's about so much more than than the music and about the you know the skill on the instrument it's about who you are and I think that's something that I personally feel should be much more um encouraged in the institutions it's something I, I personally am disappointed to not see more of I think it's getting better but I yeah. think there could be a lot more encouragement of that way of thinking and I mean certainly when I was at, at college it was it was there were a few great people in there that kind of were in that way of thinking but so but the, the general culture was very much like play your Tchaikovsky play your Sibelius well fine you know and I did that and I did that well but it was like it, let's be honest like there's no way you can make a full-time career doing something no. like that unless you have been trained from a very young age to be a world-class soloist and, and so this sort of I would say a lot of those places are have they're in danger of these sort of injecting these lofty ambitions into people but in the wrong way I think it's important to be ambitious and to aim high but but if you're there's an element where it can become delusional and actually it can be really damaging because you're sort of in a in a bubble of, of college and you might do incredibly well and get you know 90 marks and then you yeah. get out and actually you don't know how to work you don't know how to earn money and so these things for me I've always been quite pragmatic I definitely am not I say I'm much more of a, of a realist than an idealist so that's always been my default but I allow myself to kind of really you know reach for the stars but I do it in a sort of very pragmatic way if that makes sense definitely so, yeah. which I think is very very sensible <laughs> given our current situation so talking about musical diversity, you founded Classical Kicks in 2012, yeah. which yeah. for our listeners who, who don't know, um, it aims to bring classical music to a wider 
audience in a variety of accessible venues and contexts, including Ronnie Scott's in London, where you have yeah. a residency. It is the yeah. most incredible idea. And I'd love to hear more <laughs> about how this venture yeah. came about. You've got such a brilliant array of talented artists, everything from sort of string quartets to rappers and beatboxing yeah. flute players and yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah. It's Yeah, it's been literally, I suppose it's what you'd call my sort of my first creative baby. <laughs> um, it really, actually, Davina, it kind of, it came up because I was on tour a lot. I, you know, I, I mentioned Nigel Kennedy before and amazingly, you know, as my life progressed, I, I actually ended up working as his concert master. So it was an amazing sort of sequence of events that led me to that. And incredible that your childhood hero becomes your boss. You know, Absolutely. it sort of was incredible. And we, we had eight years of incredible music making together, touring Europe and he formed his own orchestra, which I was appointed leader of. Um, so whilst I was on tour a lot, I was like, I was so loving like the whole music making, as you can imagine. But I was also like, when I came back, I was like, oh, you know, it'd be really nice to like do something of my own that sort of embodies this spirit. Because I was so inspired, obviously, by the spirit of how he'd approach things. So it was funny. It was one of those real serendipitous things. I was working a lot with James Pearson, the pianist at Ronnie Scott's. Um, and it just sort of came up one day, I think, in one of their meetings. He said to me, oh, you know, we just had this meeting today. And actually, you know, they're sort of umming and ahhing about a possible classical night in the upstairs bar. And I said, oh, my God, really, can I pitch for it? You know, that was literally, it just was like, oh, that's my dream. And yeah, it was just right place, right time. I was ready with an idea, you know, and I, I pitched it. And as I was thinking about the idea and honing it to center them, I... I literally no word of a lie the name just came to me and of course when does that ever happen like usually you like agonize don't you over naming a project like oh what am I gonna call it and you know say ages naming an album whatever and it literally just came and it was like it was just one of those brilliant karmic moments where you know it's probably one of the best moments ever for me really where it just came and it's such a good name because it epitomizes you know everything that we do and so basically we would run concerts every sort of two to three months in the upstairs bar and it was just amazing I mean the first few years were because they were so experimental and just yeah. the array of stuff I mean you know the first night I think I'll never forget it like Tom Gould opened with a Chopin prelude with James playing piano you know it was just so beautiful and then it kind of went to like Gabby Swallow and Genevieve Wilkins doing this sort of crazy like modern because she was sort of down on the floor and she was eight months pregnant and like playing these amazing like hand percussion drums on the floor you know and then it kind of jumped to like um queen of the night we even had like an amazing soprano from portugal barbara barada she sung queen of the night in ronnie's and wow you know the incredible chi chi Manoka was in the audience you know it was amazing the support we had from some real eminent you know musicians mm. had come to watch tasman little was there as well they all came you know and actually in the queen of the night chi chi said oh i'd love to play and you know she got up and took the bass you know and it was such an honor like to have someone like her yeah. you know, just jump up and, and sort of want to be involved. So, I mean, even that kind of stuff was happening a lot. And, you know, it was it was just a real, a real honour, actually, to have this sense of, you know, support from those in the industry that I felt, you know, a real sense of respect for. But also, you know, the audience was everyone from, you know, young students to to kind of older classical music lovers. So, yeah, it was great fun. We did that for about sort of seven years with the last one we did was actually we did a then we did an amazing project um about a year and a half ago before the pandemic we actually collaborated with the 16 and did a downstairs concert which was just incredible because it was literally how far can you push the boundaries of classical kicks and i don't think you could go much further no, than that you know, exactly sort of with pure core like, music 
Yeah, pure choral music. And we it was incredible. It was just an absolute highlight of my career doing that concert with, with Harry and the, the choir. They're just They're, so They are amazing. As you and know. <laughs> I've worked with the 16 you know. for many years and you know. Harry too. And I, I saw, I remember actually seeing you in the audience. We did this concert at Westminster Cathedral and brilliant. that must have been just after... You'd done your classical kicks. So what did the programme involve with the 16 then? Yeah, so that was probably one of my most... I was quite proud of my curation of that programme, actually. That took some doing. Um, But I decided to call it The Origin of Song, and Harry and I worked on this this idea that you would literally go through the ages and sort of look at, you know, the concept of song, I guess, um, loosely. And so we literally had everything from sort of plain chant... We had obviously a great Purcell song, which worked really well because obviously yeah. some of them are really bawdy. And then we went from that to we even had some bluegrass in there, but I interspersed that with some old spirituals that I sang with the 16. So that wow. was like a, an amazing experience because I, I, when I sing, actually, I don't usually sing. Well, I don't sing classical. I, I only sing sort of jazz and light stuff, um, you know, so... But somehow it worked like with my kind of vocal style and then they kept theirs and it, it actually just worked. And then we did the ultimate thing, sort of amalgamation. And I mean, I must say none of this would have been as sparkly without James Pearson, who's sort of integral to the project as well. Mm-hmm. And he, um, as artistic director of Ronnie's, but also he's the most phenomenal kind of polymath. He's an incredible arranger and composer. And he came up with this crazy, amazing idea with me. We were like... I said to my, I just feel like we have to include some Oscar Peterson. It, it just, for me, it just felt like, I don't know, there was sort of a lot of iconic stuff we were touching on in the programme. And I was like, I think we really have to include some Oscar. And my favourite song, I don't know if you know, there's an incredible tune that Oscar wrote called The Hymn to Freedom, which is still like something that moves me more than anything. Yeah. He actually wrote it in response to Martin Luther King's mm-hmm. I Have a Dream speech. And James has always played it with his trio and it's always kind of been one of my favourite things they do, you know. I said, how could we incorporate this? Because it it has this obviously real, for those that don't know, it it has an incredible, I mean, it really is this almost like a symphonic piece for jazz trio. And there's a bit in the middle when you listen to Oscar playing it where he, he, um, he tremolos in both hands on the piano with the pedal full down. So Mm -hmm. you get this unbelievable like shaking kind of um, resonance and and I said how can we it's so much drama you know in it and I said how can we do this so James was like oh my god why don't we write I'll write he said a Latin intro like in plain chant you know sort of in choral style that suits the 16 but I'll do the words of the I have a dream speech in Latin and that's what he did so he trans he got someone to translate who he knows he's like a Latin scholar and they did the first sort of segment of it and then we had my incredible friend, Isata Sheriff, who is one of my longtime collaborators. She's um, an incredible rapper and all-round artist, really. She's, she's, it's hard to categorise her, and, and almost I shouldn't, because she's just a real artist, you know. And she has been part of the Classical Kicks family since the beginning. I said, is there any way you would consider coming to, to speak the speech for us? So would you come and recite, like, the first few paragraphs of the speech? Um and she did. So it, you could, I mean, it, it makes me a bit emotional even talking about it because you can imagine like this sense of, you know, when it was just before Christmas, the gig, and there was this sense of like, you know, it's a very special time of year. And, and obviously before what we knew was coming, we didn't know what mm. was coming in a few months time. It was just before 2020 in, in November 19. And, and yeah, so she came. So we managed, we just pulled it off. And basically there was an incredible accordion player called Martinez, who's a big star 
especially in Lithuania where he's from and, and he came and so James wrote this arrangement that managed to incorporate all of our different styles wow. into this one arrangement and it really is like one of the best things we've ever done and we have a recording I mean at the moment because it was an in-house one I'm not sure we can do anything but I know that there's sort of a feeling it would be lovely to do, maybe do it again you know maybe at some point come back to it but it, I think even Harry I remember Harry saying it was just such a moment you know so yeah a real kind of musical um high point that Absolutely amazing. And talking of incredible concerts, you have done so many wonderful concerts over the years of of being a freelancer. And I know Mm. for me, the success of a concert is really dependent on lots of factors um, like location, the audience, um, the weather, the tiredness, all of those sorts of (laughs) things. Um, But which are the few that you've done that have jumped out at you Mm. for being unique in some way? (laughs) That's such a good question. I mean, obviously, it'd have to be the first classical kicks just for that sense of yeah. the atmosphere, you know, and the wine glasses clinking and all of that. Um, oh, my goodness, Davina. You, that is an amazing <laughs> question. I'm like, wow. I mean, there's there's some big starry ones I was very lucky to do. I mean, I think one I'll never forget was playing for the first time Madison Square Garden in New York. And that was with Jeff Beck. And I was asked to sort of guest with his band and it was Eric Clapton's Crossroads Festival. and We were headlining, wow. so it was literally kind of a big thing, you know, and um, the, the lineup was kind of, I mean, it, it was sort of almost a joke. It was so incredible, like the names that were on there, you know, sort of. Was Brian Wilson um, playing in that as well? Not yet. No, that came later. But um, basically... Oh gosh, I mean, extraordinary. We had B.B. King, he was still alive. So B.B. King was there, um, Keith Richards came and guessed. Keith Richards just turns up and like walks on stage with Eric Clapton. It was so starry. I mean, backstage was incredible as well. It was one of those really sort of unique, because I suppose Eric Clapton, you know, commands such respect. And the charity that he's founded actually is, it's all for for rehab and, you know, because he's in recovery and is very public about it. So that that's also was quite powerful. He raised millions, I think, that night for the charity. Um, so, yeah, that was just an amazing experience. I mean, you know, we'd, we, and the thing was with that gig is that we'd we'd had quite a short time together as a band. Like we'd only really been working with him for a few, you know, months. So it was a real kind of wow, here we go, you know. And um, actually, we opened with an Irish tune, which I soloed in. You know, so it was a very unusual kind of song choice as well for him as a rock guitarist. So I'll never forget that, you know. And, and the stage, the reason why it's so memorable as well is that the stage in Madison Square Garden is a revolving stage. So when it's an incredible place because when you're um, about to play, like you, you're already ready behind the stage of the person playing already. And as soon as they're done, they just flip you around. It's literally like the most slick operation. So they flip the stage and the band that's just finished goes to the back and and we're just ready and we start. So there's not even like that faffy kind of, oh, they walk off and they unplug. It's so slick and so professional. So, but the scary thing is you're standing behind for at least 20 minutes. And I just remember standing there sitting on an amp case and I was, you know, pretty pumped. It was pretty nerve wracking. It was like, I don't know, 20,000 people or something. And, and and I was looking and there was just this sea of like crew who were just sitting having their breaks sort of looking at us because that was kind of where they had their little break area was behind the stage. You know, so I just remember like all these faces and thinking, oh God, like it was just a really weird sort of moment. And then you sort of flip round and then suddenly there, there's the light, you know, but the craziest, you know, like a flip round stage. Who'd have, who'd have thought that? You know? Amazing. I'm not sure if they'll, I'm not sure if they'll be able to afford one of those at Ronnie Scott's. <laughs> Well, we'll get saving. Um, 
<laughs> and um, you've obviously mm. talked about working with Nigel Kennedy so far. Yeah. And I know that you played in the amazing Palestine prom in 2013 yeah. with oh, him. No, that, yeah, that actually stands out. I should really have said that first because that's probably, that's probably one of the best things I've ever done. Yeah, it was... What was the programme with that? Because I know you had sort of Palestinian children chanting and, and over, yeah, Nigel, their, um, so over Ni- the, yeah. the Valdi Four Seasons, was it? Yeah, exactly. So Nigel had worked with these amazing um, young musicians. They're, they're actually called the Palestine Strings. They're based in the um, Edward Said Academy in um, mm-hmm. Ramallah. And Nigel had been over there, I think, a year before. And he had worked with them and was blown away by them. And, and by some incredible feat of... of Gosh, I mean, what it must have taken for him to organise that and pull it off with his team. But they essentially brought the whole group over um, and the BBC, you know, agreed to to have them within the concert programme. So he did this incredible thing of infusing the Four Seasons with a kind of um, Palestinian flavour. So in between the movements, we had all these like link sections, which he wrote. And then all the young people would have their spot at actually improvising, you know, which was just in itself such a brilliant concept and and then we had you know some real incredible players in the band I mean Gwilym Simcock was in the band on piano you know can you imagine like just kind of such an incredible array of musicians within the orchestra you know all of us sitting together but I'll never forget there was one moment that it just it really chokes me thinking about it every time actually it was um there's a family of young talent um the Saad family who are actually they make up a string quartet they're brothers and one sister and they all make up a string quartet with what they play and the youngest Gandhi at the time was only 12 um he had a cracking voice as well and he was um the youngest musician by a mile they were from like 12 to 20 but he was 12 and he was sitting in the violins and um and Nigel said to him you know look I think it'd be really good if you could sing like improvise something in the gig and um he apparently in his village he sometimes does the call to prayer he has that kind right. of voice you know it's really special for a young for a young boy at that time he's now he's now like 21 I can't yeah. really get my head around that but he was 12 at the time um so he yeah he basically had his the moment came in the gig and he stood up and we had this sort of drone going and he kind of um he just started you know and I mean I can't really explain to you the significance of it in so many ways. You know, a lot of these people, um, young people, had not left Ramallah ever. Mm. And to go from that to the Albert Hall, I don't really need to explain, like, what a culture shock that was in so many ways. And also they came from a very traumatised place. So it was, you know, there was a lot going on. So there was a lot of emotion. You know, the emotions had been really high all week and it had been in quite a beautiful collaboration. So he stands up and he starts, you know, and it's great, it's great. But you, you sort of, I saw, and this is what Nigel is so amazing at, he always knows how to get the best out of someone in the moment. And so you could see that he wanted more. So he kind of dug in and we all sort of dug into this drone, this sort of D drone, whatever it was. And, and he just, it was like it just injected the boy with this confidence and he just went for it and he like hit this top note. I can still hear it in my head. And this was like years ago, you know. It, it just and the whole audience got to their feet this was like in the middle of the piece they all got to their feet at that point it was literally like I can't even begin to tell you Davina wow it was honestly like I have never experienced a moment like that in a gig um just that connection this 12 year old boy brought the entire upper hall to their feet you know and and it was just amazing it actually still exists it's on um I think the uh YouTube is still up 
actually of that concert. So if anyone wants to go and look for it, it's sort of about halfway through the four seasons. If you have a little gander, <laughs> you'll find it. I will definitely go and have a look at that. It sounds yeah. absolutely mind blowing. It was, it was, yeah. Yeah. So you tour, or at least used to, um, <laughs> before this crazy situation, a huge amount around the world. Um, yeah. For me, it's sometimes a different concert in a different city or country every day sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I should think for you, it's the Can same. Be, yeah. How do yeah. you pace yourself for a, a crazy schedule like this? Are there any sort of specific techniques that you call on when you're on tour? Yeah, I think I've got a lot better at that over the years. Um, I think as you get a bit older, you realise you don't quite have the same renewable energy. Um, and so I think, you know, for sure, like meditation has played a really, I, I actually, I quali- I'm actually qualified to teach meditation, um, which is a little thing I keep in my back pocket if anyone ever wants to learn it. But I, I really believe in it. I actually do a version of transcendental meditation, which I really believe in. It's just like mm-hmm. a really simple mantra based technique, but I'm not really a fan of, I mean, I support anyone who wants to meditate is brilliant, however you do it, but um, I'm not personally such a fan of the apps. And, you know, I really like the idea that you just don't use technology for something once, you know, that yeah. it's kind of just this really nice, peaceful moment. So I've kind of got really used to doing that. And um, I tend to do that every day, actually. I think it's something that's quite important to do generally, um, not just when you're in a tight spot or you're feeling the nerves or the adrenaline or the, the tiredness. Um it sounds really silly, but sleep, you know, you just have to grab it where you can and whenever you can, especially if you're touring to that level. And I think just kind of keeping an eye on like, you know, what you're eating, what you're drinking, like it's really simple stuff. There's no rocket science really, but I think, you know, that kind of cumulative um, burnout that can come from just, you know, no sleep for a while and kind of strange hours and traveling, you know, it's just always making sure you look after your body, get some exercise, simple, really nothing particularly groundbreaking. I'm sure most people who are in the game do the same thing, but Mm -hmm. yeah, just being lot, just being sensible, you know, nurturing yourself a bit. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. I'm sure. You did an amazing cinema tour in 2019 with the Lithuania accordionist Martinus. Leviscus. Leviscus. Yeah. Who you also collaborate with on a lot of other projects. What was the idea behind the cinema tour? Um, Because you played and sang some incredible stuff in beautiful outfits (laughs) all over the place. It looked amazing. Oh, it was super fun. It was super fun. I um, Well, that was amazing because our last concert was actually the 5th of January 2020. Wow. So can you imagine like in stadium in, you know, Lithuania with sort of thousands of people and literally a month and a half later, there we were. So it, it's kind of the last big yeah. thing that I did, you know. Um, so Martinas is... A sort of phenomenon, really. I mean, for somebody who is only just in his 30s, he has achieved... It's really hard to sort of put into words. He really is an amazing guy. I, I kind of call him my musical brother, you know, so we're very close um, in terms of our musical comradeship, if you like, and camaraderie. He um, So his career uh, as an accordionist, you know, hit pretty dizzying heights early on. Then he, he was in England for a while, then he came, went back to uh, Lithuania and he set up his own orchestra called the Mikrokestra. And they actually made me guest director of that orchestra last year. So it's so frustrating because of the rules. I'm not able to yeah. go. Like it's still all these quarantine rules and everything. So, so yeah, I haven't been able to go back since that tour, but I'm sort of champing at the bit to get in. But we've done some amazing projects together. Um, the cinema tour was his brainchild. So he came up with this idea of, of picking, you know, incredible cinematic music and putting together this kind of quite audiovisual immersive show. Um, exactly what he did so he had some absolutely amazing visuals that he had created 
And yeah, we did an arena tour. So we did the whole of Lithuania and the arenas are pretty big. I mean, we're sort of talking like maybe up to 10,000 people a show. Um, And he's really, um, really, really respected out there and incredibly popular. He's kind of somewhat of a celebrity, really. If you sort of Mm -hmm. walk down the street with him there, it's quite, quite funny. Like you get stopped every five minutes and, you know, he's really, really well known there. So he's really done so well and people love him and they all turn out and they're thousands to watch him. So I was just incredibly lucky and and pleased and touched that he asked me to be special guest. You know, it was a dream tour for me really because I got to play you know um some of my favorite music and and with him and with them with the orchestra you know so it was just this lovely thing of of being a guest and and kind of just being part of this incredible machine really yeah absolutely it it, well it looked absolutely phenomenal I have to say yeah I was so lucky it really was it was wonderful yeah good fun as well yeah absolutely and you obviously as we've just said perform on stage a great deal which you adore but I know that you also do a lot of um studio recording for films and and albums so I'd love to ask a few things firstly what's the most exciting soundtrack that you've ever recorded and secondly can you explain to our listeners maybe what the difference is between um performing on stage and recording audio in a studio because there are definitely I mean Mm. certainly I know there are definitely different techniques that we kind of need to draw on for both Mm. both things it's a really good question um well most fun soundtrack I did the Mission Impossible Fallout which was the one quite recently not I think there's one they've just done but it was the one before that where that you know there'd been a break that was really brilliant um because actually the score was particularly particularly good and just full of the fun kind of and also just playing the theme it was so fun to play the iconic theme I was like oh this is so brilliant um, so that was really fun. That was that was a particularly good one that stands out. Um, in terms of techniques, yeah, I mean, I think it's very different. You know, the studio is all about precision and togetherness and, you know, teamwork. So it, I think I certainly won't bring my kind of solo diva into the studio. Yeah. That would be highly, highly, highly inappropriate and not very welcome. Like, you know, there's a sense you just, you kind of just, I think... And how I approach it as well, I'm just, I kind of just go in and get on with it. It's mm-hmm. a much more kind of low key approach, if that makes sense. And I quite like that. It, You sort of turn up and as you know, it, it, you know, it's very much about blending in and just making sure that you're really with everyone. Um, yeah. And I think because so much of what we do is recorded to a click to stay in time with the film, uh, you know, you just have to be really good at playing in time. It sounds really simple, but I think the amount of particularly classical musicians who can't actually play in time, I think there's always this classic tendency to rush as a classical musician. Yeah. And we're sort of it's we're sort of famous for it, I think, in the kind of genres. And I'll never forget, actually, my very first tour out of college was with Simply Red um, in 2005 or something. I think it was ages ago. And and Simply Red, they had a 12-piece string section and the drummer and the bass player are quite a famous duo, Pete and Steve Lewinson. They they actually grew up playing gospel church in Wilsdon Green and they're now mm. rock, tour with rock bands all over the world as a, as a duo. You know, they play together as brothers. It's really nice. And they really taught me how to play in time. And I remember it. We had a three weeks of rehearsals and all of us were rushing and it took us two weeks to actually learn really? how to play with a drummer, which kind of means sitting back a bit. So I think there's that sense of really playing in time is something that I personally think a lot of classical musicians could work much harder on. And it's something that I'm quite a stickler for with my students because mm-hmm. it's something that I think is really ignored in the general teaching of classical music. And it's you see it everywhere, like in orchestras as well, you see how things rush and slow down. And I, I think I'm just really sensitive to it because I'm so used to playing with drummers now that when I then go into an orchestra situation, I'm like, 
Wow. So in the studio, it's the opposite. You know, everybody's really good at playing in time and they have the click. So I quite like that side of it where it's really rhythmic, you know, really kind of precise. Um, but yeah, I'd say that, you know, obviously performing is a very different thing. And particularly if you're doing your own stuff, like that's your free place. You should just yeah. be totally free to express you. But there's different hats for different things, isn't there? As you well know in totally. this job. And I think we just have to be aware which one we're wearing on which day. <laughs> You're absolutely right. I completely agree. Um, yeah. So you've recorded a number of CDs over the last few years, some of which I'd love to touch on today. So the first yeah. of these is from your disc, Hasta Siempre Otra Vez, and is yeah. called Where He Used to Play, which yeah. you wrote and you're also singing on. And it's sort of based yeah. on a tango. And yeah. I can also hear the the accordion too, and yeah. the whole the CD also sort of contains a version of uh, My Funny Valentine and some other yeah. gorgeous tracks. Now, how did this album come about, and also the Spanish theme as well, because that's something yeah. that's sort of running yeah. r- running through. Um, have you always yeah. been interested in sort of tango and Latin music? Yeah, so I would say it's mu- it's actually a mu- much more Latin American flavour, um, mm. which is quite a different thing actually. Um, music wise to the music of Spain so it it's very much I actually spent some time living in Argentina for a while and I, I'm really kind of always been really connected to that music um music of Latin America I actually was the first violinist in the trio classical Latino which now has had like several incarnations of a violinist but I was there found a violinist so I kind of from being very young I was always you know playing we play Colombian music for piano trio you know which was so groundbreaking like nobody had really done that it's all yeah. kind of Colombian folk music um, we spent several years touring there and, and performing there. So it's been kind of in my blood. And then I just wanted to explore other countries. So this one's slightly more, I'd say, influenced by Argentina and my time there. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the song I wrote, actually, which which you're going to play, is it has a really sort of strong meaning. It's definitely based on a tango vibe, but it's actually about... Um, a very dear friend of myself and of James Pearson's who sadly um, was killed in a car accident about 11 years ago. And he was actually the drummer in James's band. And he also played on my first album, You Held Me. So I wrote the song about him because it was a kind of like a tribute. And I suppose the lyrics kind of say it all if you listen to it. Mm. But it, yeah, so it has a tinge, you know. It, and because he was such a, a wonderful character, his name was Chris Dagley and he was just incredible in every way. We still miss him every day. Um, both as a musician and a person. He was a real vibrant soul. And so that's why I didn't want the song to be too melancholic. You know, I yeah. wanted it to represent like his memory. So that's that was why I wrote it. Amazing. Well, it's completely yeah. beautiful. Um, oh, so here is Lizzie performing <laughs> Where He Used to Play. Stars shine so 
I'd love to touch on is Libertango from your yeah. Asta Siempre album, which is a glorious Thanks. recording. <laughs> so sweet. I love your violin solo introduction. It's incredible. And did you record all the string tracks yourself or was that with a band? No. So actually we had like some of my friends came in, which was lovely. So I had the lovely Gabby Swallow on cello and yeah, lots of lots of great people came in to do that, um, which was re- a real treat, actually. Again, James Pearson wrote that classical introduction, so we thought it'd be kind of fun to kind of almost have a slightly kind of eyebrow-raised, like very classical, almost Baroque-style introduction, and then, you know... It was Baroque, I, it kind of, and I was... All the arpeggios when you're going up, and I thought, where are we going to end up? And then suddenly it, like, launches into... yeah. <laughs> into the tango and it's so exciting I love yeah. it yeah yeah he's really so good at that James at writing that kind of thing you know so he he thought for fun oh, let's let's do it and trick the audience into thinking it's going to be a really classical album you know and then and then we just did our own version of Libertango I really like to to jazz up Libertango so I always I always perform it live with you know kind of certain instrumentations or usually drums and you know it just works really well like that so yeah, yeah absolutely and is this it kind of sounds like a live recording because you can really hear the Mm. Or, or it's been recorded in a way that you can actually hear the sort of grittiness of the string yeah. under the bow, which I love. Yeah, it's quite nice, isn't it? Yeah, I quite like that. I'm quite a fan. I'm sort of, I think a lot of people are ter- maybe understandably want it to be like super polished, but I, I kind of, I'm more in favour of like gritty raw and the odd mistake over kind of this perfect polished thing. It's not, yeah, that's just who I am. So yeah, it wasn't, I mean, it was recorded per se in, in a take, you know, but it wasn't recorded live as such, but we wanted it to feel like that. So yeah, oh, I'm glad you, um, I'm glad you picked up on that. <laughs> no, I really, I really loved it. And especially for Latin music, Thank it you. does have that rawness and grittiness mm. and emotion to it that, you know, perhaps maybe, I don't know, a Mozart concerto 
doesn't um where you want that to be super polished um well no the emotion definitely comes across in it so here is lizzie's recording of libertango from her cd hasta siempre
so Lizzie, you've curated some amazing shows over the last few years, which you have um, had to step into the shoes of a violinist, a vocalist, a composer, a producer, so many. So in 2018, you curated uh, Corrido, A Ballad for the Brave, which is part of the V&A Frida Kahlo exhibition. Mm. What an amazing idea. I was actually away touring at the time, so couldn't come, unfortunately. But perhaps you can explain to the listeners a little bit about um, what the project involved for yeah, you. Yeah, sure. We'd love to invite you the next time we do it. So we'll make we'll make sure that happens. Um, well, this was an amazing thing. This was, I suppose, I talked before about Classical Kicks being my creative baby. I'd say this was like mm. my second one. <laughs> um, so this was a show that I dreamt up initially with Morgan Shemansky, the amazing guitarist from Mexico, uh, who I've played together with together for many years. And... I decided it'd be really interesting to do like a musical storytelling of Frida Kahlo's life, um, but, you know, interspersed with visuals. So it began life as a almost like a lecture concert with visuals. And we did that in a festival up in Chatsworth House, actually, um, a few years before 2018. I think maybe in 2016 we did that. And I recorded the show and I watched it back. I just thought, gosh, this is good. But I just felt like there was more there that could be exploited. So I basically approached this incredible colleague and friend of mine, Emily Blacksell, who is a prolifically talented writer, director and producer in in sort of theatre, but she also has the rare skill of being a trained violinist and a musician. So this is a really, really rare thing for someone in the theatre who has this really strong musical kind of skill as well and knowledge. So she was sort of my my ambition. I thought, God, I wonder if she'd be up for like collaborating with me and, and changing this production. And she did. She jumped at it, which was so lucky for me. So we spent several, uh, we spent about two years working on it. And I, at the time, I also, and I'm, I'm very happy to, to talk about this because I love it. I actually, what I sometimes do is my own show on um, cruise ships, which I love because actually it's a chance mm. to really, you know, these these huge sort of ships with like 3,000 seater theatres, they're sort of full every time. So I, I was really like keen to do that actually because I felt like it was a really good way to to explore being a good entertainer um and so I had quite a few of those shows in that particular year so it was so funny because you know we were sort of you know on a boat and in and out of all these different ports and I was I was basically the minute we hit a port I was like running to the nearest internet cafe and I'd get on the phone to Emily and be like right I'm online and we'd be like right next thing so we basically produced it with me like traveling around the world and in between that doing sort of tours as well with artists and stuff so it was quite fun you know we somehow managed to put the damn thing together with me never really in England and the same time zone <laughs> and I mean Ems did an incredible job so we, we we literally made it like a fully immersive like audiovisual experience so we have 90 minutes of original content that was um created by an animator a video designer and it's just it is really stunning it's kind of like a work of art in itself and then the music it's very much like a film I guess but the music played the driving force and that was the difference and we had a narrator who for the premiere was Eve Best who's an absolutely incredible West End well she's an incredible actress worldwide um incredibly well respected and you know huge star of the stage so she she amazingly agreed to come and do it um, for us and was perfect she played this sort of 
the narrator and had this like you know very like dungarees and a rose in her hair and it was it was just sort of a really good really important addition to the show we would love to do it again it's been you know obviously like for everyone quite difficult this past year and a half we did have some incredible luck last year and that we we got some interest from i can't say who but from one of the major theaters in the uk showed some real interest and they actually partnered with us on a huge application for funding which we sadly didn't get so you know, it's one of those things, as you know, you take the knocks with the successes. I feel like yeah. I'm, I'm lucky that I've had so many. I know there's a place for this show. Yeah, and it's done and it's good to go. Yeah, so, totally. you know, which so, is yeah. once you've put all the work in, actually, yeah, and you're so. convinced and you feel you're really happy with your product, I think it's just a matter of time to find the right fit for it. And, and it will it will come. That's how we feel. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and you followed suit with a sort of similar type of show, didn't you, about Stravinsky and Coco Chanel? Yeah, which I'm doing again this year. I'm really excited. I'm actually going to be doing it in July in the Buxton Festival with the amazing Milos Milivojevic, who's this extraordinary accordion player, I'm sure, known to many of your listeners. Um, so, yeah, I put together a similar idea. I just, you know, there's a real relationship there, obviously, between Chanel and Stravinsky. There's been a few films made about it. But I wanted to go from more of Stravinsky's angle. So, yeah, we just looked at some of the coincidences and... Amazing, actually. You know, Chanel had a huge amount to do with Stravinsky's success. She actually funded quite a lot of his premieres. And, and it was just really fascinating to see that the relationship between them went beyond, you know, the romantic. It was, you know, really quite a deep sense of admiration for each other's work. And, and you know, that was wonderful, actually, to sort of find out. So because of that, there's some really fun, like, musical illustrations that you can give. But it's a much simpler structure. So it's one that kind of you know, a lot of music societies are, are wanting to have, you know, it's quite easy to kind of take it into churches, for example. So yeah. I wanted I wanted a structure that was a little easier to kind of transport. So actually the show works without visuals um, as well as with, um, because it's just more about the kind of imagination and the concept of these two yeah. amazing figures, you know, living at the same time and doing their thing Absolutely. in Paris. Imagine, my God, if, if only we could be transported back. I know, time. quite. Yeah. I know. Well, it's Stravinsky's birthday today, actually, I think. In so no that way. was. Oh, yeah. Ah, there you go. Yeah, well, it sounds absolutely amazing. What a brilliant concept. So I've just returned from Mexico, actually, yes. which we were just chatting about. Best country ever. <laughs> what a sort of glorious, amazing, yeah, culturally amazing, rich yeah. country. And I know that you spend a lot of time there working with your new charity, Prisma, which helps children in need. Yeah, that's right. It's actually founded by Morgan Shemansky. Um, so I'm really lucky to be an ambassador, which he kind of very kindly sort of bestowed that, that honour on me. But yeah, he founded it and he's an amazing guy. He basically decided there was a real need for, you know, more artistic um, input, and particularly in the local rural schools of Mexico. So He's done an unbelievable job. I mean, in sort of four to five years, I think he's reached mm. over 30,000 children, you know, and he's not he's not yet, you know, a major charity in the sense that he's not, you know, it's all word of mouth. Wow. It's all kind of just people knowing how good he is. And he has this huge team of artists from clowns to actors to musicians, and they all travel up into these mountainous schools in Mexico. I mean, I, I was literally in this school that had like 10 children in total, and the eldest had her baby brother with her because obviously the parents were working and so the little baby was there as well. You know, it was just extraordinary, like just a totally different thing. And they'd never seen a violin and were just totally kind of confused by it and didn't understand. You know, it was just amazing, like these real experiences of life that you kind of have. So, yeah, Morgan is incredible and Prisma is it's wow. a really amazing thing. 
yeah absolutely amazing amazing. and what does it involve the outreach when you when you go into these schools you're playing to them you're doing workshops yeah like playing obviously because of the language barrier like I'll always do them with like Morgan present and he'll be able to translate (laughs) yeah and I mean you know you know to be in its universal language I mean even with call and response and stuff like you don't always need to speak you know so yeah we we just have fun and we show them the instrument and I mean a lot of it is they just want to hear the instrument as well because they just they haven't heard it a lot of them before and so it's just really lovely, like some of the percussionists that have been to do stuff, um, you know, they get really involved and make percussion out of rubbish and, you know, so they really go for it. It's kind of like a really immersive thing. Absolutely yeah. amazing. And yeah. you also do outreach in the UK and Mumbai too. Yes, I've done bits everywhere. I mean, like all of us, I suppose we're so lucky that we're able to access this kind of thing as a musician exactly. on the road. And do you do that through charities or do you go that alone or...? Yeah, I mean, I just, the Mumbai thing was a lovely thing. It was actually, I was doing one of my cruise shows and the, the ship docked in, in Mumbai and, and due to the nature of how the schedules work for your shows, you don't always know when you're going to be playing. So I couldn't plan much in advance. And I was desperate to try and find, you know, some schools to go and visit because I knew that if I'd had a few days off while we were waiting and because the ship stayed in Mumbai for a couple of days. And amazingly, I did have these two days free. And so I got in touch with a friend of mine. It was all quite last minute and just one of those lovely serendipitous things. I got in touch with a friend of mine who used to teach in a school in Mumbai. I just remember that she did. And I just literally got in touch with her and said, look, is there any way that I could go and visit this school? And would they like me to come and play? And yeah, and it just all happened within like 48 hours. So there I was in a taxi going somewhere in Mumbai I mean it was real venture you know but we got there and the kids were just incredible it was the school was amazing I think there's a lot of schools here that could learn from that school in many ways their education system in some of those places is is far superior to ours and this this particular NGO was very special they're called uh, Muktangan and they have a really good um, CEO and, and they're run mostly in the slum areas of Mumbai there's about seven schools that they have but they're all run on like this principle of emotional intelligence I mean can you imagine so you Amazing. walk into the school and that's the first thing you see is like this painting that says, you know, we we believe in emo- like we aspire to like teach our children to to be emotionally aware. I mean, it's just it's different level. Yeah. And you talked about shows that you do on cruise ships. What sort of shows are those? <laughs> what do they involve? So I am what's called a guest entertainer. So that's that's a basically um, you're invited to do your own solo show. So they they. Yeah, the the agent that I have got in touch a few years ago. She said, "Look, we we really love what you do as a singer and a player, and we'd love to have you come and be an entertainer." And I said, "Well, yeah. I mean, you know, why not? I think it's something. It's interesting. You know, cruise work is something that in the past has been very kind of, I would say, you know, slightly sort of. I think people can tend to look down their nose at it, and I think that's so false because in my life I have never seen such an array of talent on those ships. I mean." My fellow guest entertainers, the comedians. The, I mean, I literally stood in awe of all of them. And it's it's a really, really hard thing to do because you're basically, you're coming on stage with your own show that you've curated, but all the people in there don't care who you are and aren't there to see you. They're there to have a good time. And they happen to have walked into the show because it's seven o'clock and they're going to have dinner afterwards. So I don't think there is a better place to train your performing skills than on a ship because nobody knows you. So basically you have to win them over and you've only got 45 minutes to do it. So actually like people walk, people can walk out. I mean, I've been in shows where they haven't been so good and and people have, you know, I'm watching and people just leave. The audience are your judge, you know, so if they don't think it's good, they're not going to stick around. So 
I have to say, I think, you know, the things I've learned from doing that job have been immense. And I would seriously encourage anyone to do it if they can, because it's it's training ground. You know, it's where, you know, and I think some of the really big stars, you know, they definitely cut their teeth doing that. Because it's like, if you can win over a stranger, you can win over anyone, you know. No, you're, you're absolutely right. Wow. It's good fun. You've been incredibly busy during lockdown, retraining um, as a transformational life coach and <laughs> yeah. creating a new business called Set Your Stage. Yeah. Um, the idea behind this business, I think, is to combine your career, music and your life experience together with this new skill in order to help young people and professionals in both the music uh, world and other fields That's right, yeah. uh, with skills in leadership and performance and can I mention that you've you've just received a, an amazing RPS Enterprise Award which yeah. is incredible congratulations so pleased I know I was really honoured actually it was such a such a nice thing because there's a really amazing list of musicians who are on on those recipient list so yeah it was it was an honour to be amongst them I yeah I mean really you know there was a lot of time given to us wasn't there let's say the, the positive side of it is there was a lot of time given to us when we lost a lot of concerts you know particularly the beginning of, of last year so I had always thought about doing that and I'd say you know I decided to take the qualification because I think it would always be something that would stand me in good stead um but it's really nice initially I took it as a way to stay positive and stay learning and, and not be you know, struck down by, let's face it, what was frankly the trauma of what we were all going through as musicians. Um, but then actually, as it materialised, I, I just found myself really enjoying it. I met an incredible group of, of 25 wonderful people who are still great friends and from completely different walks of life, which, you know, I love. I love mixing with all kinds of different people. So that was perfect for me. And then, yeah, through it, I guess I'm just finding my feet, really. I, I was going to sort of I think starting a new business like this... It's a, it's a delicate balance of having to focus and push, but also knowing when the universe needs to kind of do its thing. And I think that's something I'm learning as I'm getting older, you know, that when I was pushing and pushing for it a few months ago, it, it's weird how now what's happening, I'm sort of sitting back and working quietly behind the scenes. But funnily enough, that's actually attracting the right kind of clients to me by kind of just doing my thing and being authentic. So, you know, I'm now starting to attract what I would say is just the, oh God, I mean, the dream kind of clients that I would love to coach more who are essentially in music or in creativity, um, but who are, you know, interested to, to just maybe look into other ways of being creative. That said, I also have some incredible clients currently who are in completely different walks of life and who I love because also that challenges me in a different way in that I, I suppose I can bring to the table my angle, which they might find helpful in their, you know, in their bank or in their teaching business or in their, you know, um, accountancy. It's literally, I've had people as wide as that. And I, I really love that. So there's not, it's not to say that I'm exclusively going to just niche in, in creatives, but it's something that is just something I'm used to. So I think that's kind of where my strengths mostly lie. That's amazing. And what, what was the inspiration behind this? Is it something you've always wanted to do? Yeah, I think it's always been in the back of my mind to have some kind of different offering as a mentor type figure um I think my style of coaching is a bit blurred I tend to blur into the mentor kind of category because people tend to come to me for that and they you know coaching is classically and, and um, not advisory and that's something that's very sort of important about coaching it's about you discovering yourself with a bit of help from someone else but I think for me um some of the people that come to me specifically ask for advisory you know, guidance. So I think it's, you know, for me, there's a sort of a blend that I seem to have kind of 
well, I'm gently, you know, I wouldn't say mastering, but I'm gently kind of finding my way with it. And so I think that's something that is really cool. But then just the straight coaching where you are very much in the role of coach is just fascinating, just listening to people. And, you know, I think just trying to make a difference. I guess as musicians, we make a difference and it's something that we love and it's the byproduct of all our hard work, hopefully, if we do our jobs properly. So I think there's always been that sense for me of, well, it doesn't, doesn't just have to be on stage that I make a mm. difference, you know, and... And I've really reconciled myself with that. You know, it's it's a good kind of thing to feel, yeah. well, if the industry is going to be somewhat different and we might be less busy with lots of touring and whatever, then actually I'm really quite happy if if a lot of my time is spent doing this kind of work because it's actually coming from the same emotional place for me. And that was a real surprise. I was like really happy to feel that. I was like, oh, this is actually quite a familiar feeling. And then I realised, oh, it's because it's a similar thing. It's just in a different um, space, I guess. Yeah, and you're tapping into the same resources. It's just because just you don't have a violin in your hand. That's just a tool to, to express yourself, but the same thoughts and processes apply, which is really exciting. And you mentioned meditation before, that you're also qualified as a meditation coach. Um, how did that come about? Is it always something that's been important? Yeah, I think it was just something, again, I just had time on my hands and a, a great um, colleague of mine was offering, you know, sort of, a course and I just thought you know actually this could be a cool thing to do so I mean it's just nice to have it in my back pocket because some of my clients I mean I do you know that said I do actually have um violinist clients who come and we do take out the violin so that's now that we're allowed to be in person it's really fun because I kind of incorporate all the things that I've learned into my violin teaching as well so that's kind of that's kind of where I think it's at it's most fun because someone will come to me and I can give them like a 360 approach so depending on what they need we can cover everything from you know, performance psychology to, you know, self-confidence to, you know, literally nitty gritty of playing to, you know, have they got nerves? Should we look at meditation? You know, so I just feel like actually as performers, you know, as you know, I mean, we're, we're whole people and we're sort of athletes. And again, I think that side of our training is pitifully kind of <laughs> small in proportion to all the scale practice and stuff. And yeah, I just think why not have a balance of everything really? So... Exactly. Yeah. I completely agree. I would love to finish today's podcast with another one of your recordings. So this is Besame Mucho from your disc, Hasta Siempre. Sonrisa 
Aquí se queda la clara La entrañable transparencia De tu querida presencia Comandante Che Guevara
Wow, give it up for Ed. All of the recordings which we have discussed today can be found on the Spotify playlist for today's episode of The Classical Corner. Lizzie, it's been such an utter joy and delight to have you here today in The Classical Corner. What a pleasure to share so many musical memories and adventures with you and to hear you play so beautifully too. So thank you. Thank you so much, Davina. This has just been amazing. And um, I just love what you're doing with this podcast. So I'm really delighted to be one of your guests and hope to see you soon. Hope we can play together soon. Me too. I can't wait. Yeah, it was super fun. (laughs) Thank you all so much for joining me for another episode of The Classical Corner. I hope you'll tune in next time when we shall continue to explore some more glorious music together. In the meantime, I wish you all a wonderful week. Goodbye.